Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit capital.com and start your trading journey today. If you have created a company in the last 12 to 18 months, have got a strong founding team, all the usual kind of points, unit economics, problem that you're solving that is large and scalable, and have proven some monetization and a path to unit economics that are favorable to an investor, that becomes the sweet spot. Mm. And that ticket size tends to be between to one to five million and a valuation between 15 to 25 million dollars. So that becomes, and if they can then use runway of the next 12 to 18 months to grow that company and then the market comes back, then when they come to raise their series A, B, C, D, they'll be catching the upswing again of the venture capital ecosystem. Hello everyone and welcome to Conversations with Lulu. I can't believe I'm still here. It's 2023. It's the fourth year of Conversations with Lulu and I couldn't have done it without you. Everybody who has tuned in, who has shared, who has sent me feedback, who has recommended guests and also of course all of the wonderful people that have come on the show and shared personal and professional insights and helped me make this show so special. Thank you very much. 2022 ended on a high Apple podcast featured conversations with Lulu under shows that made us think for 2022 for the Middle East region and I couldn't be more more proud of that because that's exactly the point of the show. As for this episode, I wanted to kick off the year with insights on what's been happening in the venture and startup ecosystem in our region. And the best person to talk to about that is Philip Pahoshi. He is the founder and CEO of Magnet. Magnet is a UAE-born platform that tracks startup and investment activities in the Middle East, Africa, Turkey, and Pakistan. They have recently released a very extensive report, which you can find on Magnet and you can download for free. The report's called the Emerging Venture Markets Report for 2022. I'm going to unpack that report with Philip in this episode. I'm very much interested in his thoughts and his views as someone who has been in this ecosystem for nearly a decade. So it's going to be very exciting to get his insights. And uh, yeah, make sure you tune in. How are you? Great. Good to see you. Yeah. Second time on the podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be back. One of of my early guests in 2020 and now you're back. And now we've changed. You saw me when I had just moved into my new office and now we've moved to our offices in DIFC. And you've grown so much as well as a company, as Magnet. Thank you. So let's talk about your report. So you recently released the Emerging Markets Venture Report, right, for 2022? Yeah. So can you get, just give the headlines, basically, how, how did the, the global situation, macroeconomic situation impact what's, what's going on here? So I think it's useful just to put a little bit of context, right? So we're now recording in January. Last year was a very turbulent year from an economic perspective. If you look at the US markets or the global markets, this all began to kick in in 2021, where inflation was a key catalyst to the requirement to increase interest rates. The increasing of interest rates then kind of cooled down the financial markets, the public markets, and the impact of the public market almost crashed, a 40% decrease in the NASDAQ. You've seen big Tech companies completely drop in terms of valuations on the market caps through 2022, then begins to kick into the private market space. Mm -hmm. And as a result, globally, venture capital investment cooled off from the start of 2022. And what we've seen here in the region, if you look at the report specifically, is that if you look at the venture capital investment in the regions we cover, so we now cover Africa, Middle East, Pakistan, Turkey, the aggregate number of funding is the equivalent in 2022 to 2021. But what I keep repeating is that that's a little bit skewed by the fact that Q1 of 2022 was a record quarter in terms of investment capital. And we did the comparison to, for instance, CB Insights. If you shifted our graphs one quarter back, mm-hmm. 
you would see that it replicates what happens at a global level, i.e. Q4 of 2021, where investment was re reaching record amounts, mm -hmm. was the peak of the investment landscape. Yeah. And then they saw four progressive quarters of decline. We've now seen that three progressive quarterly decline in investment funding, starting off with a record start of 2022. Okay. So we're, we're almost a quarter behind what happens everywhere else. Exactly. Okay. That's an interesting so phenomenon. So if there is a recovery now in the US, should be should means that... Well, I think it's quite interesting because if you have to take an honest view as to why, I think that data transparency and data information access is more rapid in the US mm -hmm. or Europe than it is here. We know that here, for instance, it takes longer to fundraise than it does in more mature markets. And we also know there tends to be a habit, I think we talked about this on the podcast last time, that there's a delay in announcements for fundraisers. Mm -hmm. Therefore, what I've been very transparent about is that Q1 of last year are likely all to have been deals that were cooked into 2021, but reported in Q1. Okay. So, but in, in your report, the numbers have been flat, basically. So flat year on year, yes, yeah. but... I think in both regions and in all of the geographies, so whether it's the UAE, for instance, or, or in Saudi Arabia or Saudi Egypt. has seen a very big increase. So if you look at Saudi specifically, it's uh, an interesting story. Year on year, they've seen a 72% increase in funding, which is an extremely positive figure for, for the kingdom. And it now ranks third in the emerging markets that we cover, Turkey first, UAE, and then Saudi Arabia. But again, they're not immune to the same phenomena. They had a record Q1 mm -hmm. and then progressive declines in funding for the next three quarters. So the other thing that they had was that they had big three mega deal investments. Mega deals are what we consider to be $100 million plus investments. That constituted close to 40% of the investments. Turkey, for instance, which ranked first, had 70% of their investment coming from mega deals. How many? I think that they had four as well. Okay. So they had the likes of Getir, Dream Games, Insider. And that's even more skewed than Saudi. So like you're saying that 70% of all funding in Turkey, came which was about 1.2 billion, came from four deals, mm. which means that the underlying ecosystem ranked much lower compared to other countries that exist in the MENA region. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, it's important, and as a data platform, we're always very consciously aware of that. The high-level figure tells one story, but the details mm -hmm. tells another. For instance, in the UAE, 30% came from mega deals. Which is healthier. Uh, it's healthier to a certain extent, yes. But it's also a reflection that late-stage investment is going to be harder to come by Stage, how do you define late stage? So I would say exactly the mega deal phenomena. I think we looked at the numbers for mega deals in 2021, there were 14 deals. In 2022, there were 13. Mm -hmm. And it was against the backdrop of a 20% decline in the capital that was being deployed at late stage. Now, if you look at hyper growth, late stage, series B investments, those are the ones that get you towards your M&A activity, your IPO, really growth stage investment. And I think we recorded that six of those deals happened in Q1 of last year. Mm -hmm. Nine out of the 13 were in the first half, which means in the second half of the year, there was a clear drop in late stage investment activity. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens this year. Now, you talk about Saudi Arabia. One of the predictions and one of the views that I have is where there is a clear government focus on innovation, where there is clear milestones and objectives to support innovation and Saudi Arabia with Vision 2030, with the efforts that you can see from MCIT, with the likes of the Jeddah Fund, the funds, SVC, there is a clear focus on investment in the startup space. It is likely that growth in funding is to continue. Not to say that other geographies aren't interested in innovation, but it is clear that we're going into a challenging economic environment compared to the last two, three years. And therefore the question becomes, is startup venture innovation the priority for governments in 2023 compared to the years gone past? And where liquidity now is much more expensive with interest rates at four, 4.5%, 4 
is the private sector interested in venture? Mm. Because I mentioned on the webinar the other day, and it came from the All In podcast, David Sachs talked about it, the crowding out effect. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting phenomenon. If interest rates are now at 4.5, if not 5% in the months to come, mm -hmm. that means you can go to your bank put the money and in. put the money in to get a fixed deposit, yeah. which means that corporates are able to give out kind of bonds that are giving you 6, 7, 8%. That means that the opportunity cost is that much higher that even in the stock market, you're expecting returns of 10 to 15%, not what we've seen in the last two, three years, but mm -hmm. like 10 to 15%. Otherwise, you just put it into fixed deposits, mm -hmm. which means that the return or the IRR or the expectations of return of investment from venture capital has to be about 25, 30%. That's a lot of pressure on consistent annual growth of companies that therefore makes VCs, the private sector, etc. question, should we be investing in venture or should we be investing in other asset classes? And yet, if you don't invest in venture and technology and innovation, what has really revolutionized much of the geography and the interest of government to move away from oil and gas and, and, and tourism into the technological space, then we might not see that rate of innovation that we've been seeing in the last couple of years. So building on that, I think the, the region is quite flush with cash, right? I mean, I think I read the, the other day, the between the sovereign wealth funds in this region, there's $3 trillion in assets and, and cash and so on. There should be, in theory, an interest in 2023 to continue these activities and to continue supporting the startup ecosystem. What do you hear through your back channels? You are very well connected. <laughs> well, so I don't know about my back channels, but I think it's interesting that the rhetoric in the news is clearly shifting towards the positioning of the Gulf and the capital that exists from oil money. Bloomberg just this week announced with articles as Davos is taking place and all the power brokers are descending into Switzerland that the, the bankers of the world are no longer based in Wall Street, but they're based in the Gulf. And it is clear that when you hear signaling of the the MBS making points saying that they are happy to accept oil money in foreign currency, yes. not in, in yuan, dollar, in yuan, that there is a shift towards the east. President Xi's visit to Saudi Arabia last year, as well as delegations that we've just seen, the South Korean president to the UAE, uh, delegations from Asia, another prediction that we put in the report. And actually, this takes me back to 2018-19 pre-pandemic, as Magnet, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast, we had seen increased interest from Southeast Asia in the Gulf, if not Africa, than ever before. That kind of got halted because of the challenges that we saw with COVID. And I think that one of the things that I realized, having been to INSEAD and Singapore for six, nine months traveling around the region, is that culturally, there is an important understanding and affinity that cultural differences are quite um, uh, distinct between Asia and the Middle East, but the interest of commercial business and breaking down the silos is quite high. Mm -hmm. When you have restrictions on travel and the ability to meet people face to face, those cultural differences are quite astute. But now that people are returning to travel, now that the COVID restrictions in China are beginning to be alleviated, now that Singapore is fully functional, now that Hong Kong is seeing more in interest in travel both ways, I believe that interest that I was seeing back in 2018-19 is likely to continue this year. And I think that the Asian bridge between Asia and the Middle East and the interest in Africa is one that's going to continue to play out into 2023 and beyond. So to answer your question, yes, it'll come through investment either locally or what we're definitely seeing, and I was recently speaking to a trade delegation that came, that Entities, sovereign entities are likely to make investments, but one of the conditions of those investments is likely to be bring some of that intellectual capital, bring some of that know-how, bring some of that investment 
to the region. Where before it would be to export investment internationally, now it's will invest, but potentially bring some of that know-how and intellectual capital to our region so that we can further develop the ecosystem. And that will likely show in some of the data with increased investment in specific geographical regions uh, in, in the emerging venture market space. Okay, because I saw in your report as well, that, <clears throat> which I thought was very interesting, is that For example, the U.S., a third of investments happening here in MENA come from the U.S., over 50%, I think, in Africa. In Africa. Over 50% of investments in MENA are from international investors. So there's already actually you know, a bigger amount of investment coming in from abroad than, than what's happening locally. So do you see that? So based on what you said, I think what you're saying is we could potentially see more of that from Asia. Yes. Right. In addition to potentially more capital from the from the GCC as well. So last year we we launched on the platform a tracker for deployed capital. So historically, all the research that we reported was by number of deals. Now we actually have proxies, if not accurate numbers, for all investor deployed capital. So if take for an example, mm -hmm. if there are five investors in a specific round, we will now say how much each of those investors participated in any investment. And then when you aggregate that, you can see how much deployed capital a specific investor. Now, mm -hmm. when you tag that by geography, you can then tag where that capital is coming from. And hence, to the figures that you mentioned, we're now able to see which geographies. Now, let me be clear, when we're talking about 50% in Africa and 30% coming from the US for MENA, it's because the proportion is coming from late stage investments. Mm -hmm. The availability so of late stage. Those mega deals. Those mega deals, okay. the availability of late stage capital in the region is harder to come by than it is when you're looking at the likes of Sequoia, when you're looking at the like of uh, US-based NEA investing in the region, Tiger Global coming from outside of the region. So it's skewed by that the amount of capital is coming from international. In fact, we ranked the top 10 most active investors in emerging venture markets that accounted for 50% of all of the capital that was deployed in the region because they're investing in late stage. Mm. Now, to your point, I anticipate that we are likely to see, one, more capital coming from Southeast Asia, two, more Southeast Asian companies coming to our region to get to scale, and three, when I speak to Southeast Asian investors, which I've done many a time, leading entities coming out of Singapore, and we're now going to be bringing all Singaporean data onto Magnet in the next six months and moving to Southeast Asia as well. What they say is the biggest challenge for Southeast Asian startups is exits. And what they're interested in is, are there acquirers or investors in companies that are Southeast Asian from the Gulf? So if you go back to what I just said, is that one, potentially from an acquisition perspective, to bring those companies to the region or to at least bridge the gap, there could be corporates, large companies or large sovereign entities that are interested in acquiring them. Or number two, potentially investing in those Southeast Asian companies with a view that they need to come to the region. And therefore, scale in venture remains the game. And it's interesting to see that that bridge is likely to kind of get broached in the next couple of months, if not years. And when you see the president of China coming, it's not about Southeast Asia only. It's about Japan, Southeast Asia and China seeking opportunities that exist. Because I think that the US is so well insulated and, and the growth in the US is so strong that it's an individual market. Europe has its own challenges. Interestingly, we never talk enough about India, but India is a huge market in itself. You look at its neighbor, Pakistan, and the bridges that are done with the Middle East. But I am excited to see the opportunities that exist with Southeast Asia and, and the Middle East. Okay. Just to for the purposes of the audience, when you talk about late stage funding, we're talking startups that are raising north of $20 million? Exactly. So okay. normally a, we, we had that on the Magnet platform. Now we do average investments by stage. A typical seed investment round is about one, one to 
two million dollars, depending on which geography they're in. A Series A can be anything from five to twelve million. Series B can be twenty million plus, and we constitute late stage to be Series B plus. And then when you're going C, D, E, it can go up to fifty, a hundred million, uh, depending on the company. Tabby just raised yesterday an investment round. I believe it was around sixty million dollars at Series B. So that that's the kind of indication. Series B or C, I think. Was it C, Series I think C? It was C yeah. um, so that, that's yeah. kind of some of the indication of the latest yeah. stage investment rounds that are happening in this space. Were there any surprises in the report? Like, was there something that maybe you didn't expect that you saw? So for example, I'll give you one thing that I read that I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I saw that when it comes to the, the value of funding that has been deployed, I saw that you know three African countries, Egypt, Nigeria, and Kenya, had $2 billion deployed in venture, which is the equivalent of the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And I don't know why, but I just couldn't, maybe, I mean, I've seen your reports before, but I don't think I expected that you'd see that much capital in in Africa. So was that a surprise or was that expected? And are there any other numbers potentially or data? I love that you bring that up because when Magnet started, we focused on the GCC and then we covered MENA. And it almost became self-fulfilling because you always focused on which was bigger, UAE, Saudi, mm. Egypt, etc., etc. And it was the same three. One of the things that I'm most dear about is that the more geographies in emerging markets. Now, there is an argument, how do you compare to the US and China? We have a rep- page in our report that we take from international platforms that puts the US, it puts Europe, it puts Asia, it puts Latin. So actually, what was very interesting, because I just did the webinar, Emerging venture markets, Africa, Middle East, Pakistan, and Turkey, was the same amount of funding as Latin America, mm-hmm. which was at $7, $7 billion. So all three of them were roughly kind of in that space. Sorry, LATAM was equivalent to emerging venture markets. And Asia. Be like maybe $50 billion, right? Well, <laughs> actually, last year, it was about $20 billion. It, it dropped oh. 60% in terms of funding okay. Latin America in the current environment. Okay. But yes, if, if but then if you look at, MENA was 3 billion and Africa was about 3.5. Both of them were about 3.5 billion in terms of funding. So on an individual regional level, it depends how you want to break things down. And that's why with data, it's very interesting. But when you say that, can you compare it to the US? No, you can't because the US market is just that much bigger when you look at it from a funding perspective. So what am I excited about? I just mentioned that we'll be launching Singapore. Well, we'll be doing Singapore and then we'll be adding Indonesia, then we'll be adding Malaysia, then we'll be adding Taiwan. You can now benchmark against other geographies that exist in what we call emerging venture markets because they're not emerging markets. Many of them are developed markets, but from a venture capital perspective, they are emerging venture markets that we track. And to your point, That surprise wasn't necessarily in this report. That surprise was in last year's report when we did it for the first time, where we actually saw, wow, Nigeria ranks sixth and Turkey is first. And we keep saying how big X country and GCC is and Y country is. But actually, when you contextualize it, Ghana now ranks fourth and by number of transactions. So when when you look at the data, well, Nigeria is a huge population. Egypt is the largest Middle Eastern population by number of people. So when you look at venture as the importance is scale, then it makes sense that there are companies that are able to scale. But then the economic challenges that you have in some of the African countries with currency depreciation, access to capital, repatriation of capital, repatriation of capital you look at challenges with bureaucracy, Okay, so there's the the opportunity as well as the challenge that exists. And hence, Africa sees a lot of funding of FDI and international. We talk about 50% of the capital coming from the US in terms of concerted focus, obviously in venture because it's not charity, but with a focus of opportunities for growth within Africa. Mm -hmm. But you're right to point out that it's a surprise to start seeing those numbers rank high. I anticipate that the figures that you see for Turkey, for instance, are likely to be lower for the years to come because of, if you look at Getir, you look at Insider, Dream Games, those amounts accounting for 70% of the total funding skews the underlying data. And therefore, 
if next year we don't see mega that late-stage mega-deal investments. And in fact, there was only a, a Bloomberg article that came out now saying there's consolidation in the kind of point-to-point -point delivery and the transport and logistics and the e-commerce space, then it's likely to be more of an M&A activity than there is to be funding. Turkey, for instance, may drop and we'll see more of the GCC countries mm. lead the way in terms of investment capital. Things that definitely surprised me is the decline in funding quarter on quarter. Because if you spoke to people on the street, they still believe that there was a lot of investment capital. And I think that what people perceive there to be in the ecosystem in terms of funding and what is actual capital that's being deployed is different. One thing that we showed is that finally we have a predictive graph where we look at seasonality. We finally track the trend that Q3 in the MENA region is on average down 40% compared to Q2 or 35% compared to Q2 and there's a 46% upswing in Q4. So, so the summer lull, the summer lull <laughs> is a phenomenon. So that's a tip that to entrepreneurs, never fundraise in summer. <laughs> or, or that they're never announcing in or the summer because nobody's yet. ever around. Okay, let's take a quick break. So I want to pick up on something that you said about you were you said you were surprised by the funding in sorry the decline in funding that was happening quarter on quarter last year. So what do you think that means when it comes to VCs ability to raise funding? How has that whole kind of macro situation impacted uh, VCs here because you could argue that VCs have already raised potentially and why aren't they deploying, right? So was there a pullback on deploying or or were they not able to raise or it's both? A it's a great question. And I think that the scenarios depend on when the funds were announced or mm -hmm. raised. If you were raising funds back in 2020, 21 and have dry powder, you are in a perfect sweet spot now in yes. 2023 because we're seeing a decline in the valuations. It's definitely moved in the focus of investors versus startups. If you had raised in 2020 and were deploying in 21 and 22, then it would have been a bit more challenging, specifically if you were deploying in 21, because you would have been at the peak of the market. And it'll take a while for many of those valuations to come back and return. Can you go out and raise again? Well, again, who are the LPs in the region? If they're sovereign, then again, it has to be with a focus of investing within specific geographies. And many of those sovereigns potentially have funds to deploy and it'll be interesting to see whether that happens in 2023. If it's corporate or family offices, the way that the market is and the way that inflation is and we go back to the crowding out effect is, is venture something that they want to be investing into. And, and therefore, it really depends on the availability of dry powder for each and every investor in the current circumstances. And I think it'll take probably about 12 to 18 months before we see a flurry of investment from an LPGP level back into venture if it's not from sovereign entities. The question then becomes, what do you do if you're a startup? And I think the general consensus, and this can be coming from podcasts like the All In, coming from general sentiment when you're speaking to VCs, is it's a conservation mindset. Venture is a scale game, and, and for almost five to six years, it's been scale at all costs. Well, when liquidity dries up and there is a lack of funding availability, as we mentioned, through progressive declines, and it's likely to continue into 2023, then founders need to be thinking about how do you conserve cash? And we have already seen an array of headlines of large companies scaling back on employee staff, scaling back on markets that aren't necessarily proving unit economics, looking to conserve cash with regards to marketing and excessive spending. And the pursuit has to be unit economics or at least positive growth towards profitability. That will put you in a much stronger position. Now, some companies have such low margins in terms of their, 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 their unit economics that that becomes very challenging, specifically those that may have raised in the boom time. But at least if they've got dry powder themselves as a startup, that's the mindset that they need to move towards. But in terms of valuations, 
we are already tracking. Number one, Magnet now tracks valuations on the platform for all investments. And we've surveyed many investors to try and understand the evolution of dilution effects in the market to be able to, to do that. But number two is that these companies that are looking to raise are likely to see valuations come back to pre-pandemic norms and are going to have to, in many cases, either do bridge rounds in the current environment or accept valuations that are similar to what they raised previously or lower in terms of potential down rounds until we start seeing an upswing again in the venture capital space. And the final one is, or they look at M&A opportunities because if you can't raise cash, then maybe it's an opportunity for mergers. So I wanted, I think, to clarify a few of the terms that we've used because I think we were, you know, they were very uh, VC-specific terms. So just to go back a little bit, so the, the, the VCs function, you have general partners that actually manage the funds and you have limited partners or LPs. These are the people who are investing in funds and they could be government, they could be family offices, they could be high net worth individuals. So I just wanted to sure. to, to clarify that in terms of... The, in term, the, geek, the geek in me gets very... Yeah, uh, no, because I realized, you know, a lot of times that there are a lot of listeners that may not be super familiar with the with the venture capital and startup space. So I think it's, it's always good to clarify. There was the other point that we were talking about now, which is the down rounds uh, potentially. So this is when you raise at a, at a very high valuation of your company and then you're out of money and you need to go out and raise again and then the valuations have dropped. And, and, and these are very, very painful. Yeah. Do, are they happening yet? Or, are, or is everyone just conserving, like it's, it's, uh, laying off people? This is very hard for me to speak to. I mean, I like Magnet to remain objective and data-driven. And for now, <coughs> the availability of data around this is somewhat limited. Okay. Number one, because people don't tend to share funding announcements that are down rounds. And number two, they're usually done through the investors that they already have. And therefore... So hush-hush. It's, 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 yeah, so... It, not to say that's bad, but it's just we, we aren't necessarily able to capture that information unless it's shared with us. Again, we're not a regulator so that they have a requirement to share this information with us. But anecdotally, it's clearly happening because mm. there's no way that companies are unable to in their growth without some type of funding. In fact, a feature that we will be launching in the next two to three months, I believe, is that we now have, based on historical data, the average time to raise for each round. So how long does it take to raise from C to Series A and Series A how to long? Series B? I, I don't have the number right now, but I think on average, a good startup would be raising rounds on average between nine to 12 months, but in the region, it takes between 12 to 18 months to raise those rounds. So you'll be consecutively raising rounds. Um, Please tell me this is later stage. Uh, early, yeah. It cannot be early stage. Even at early stage, it depends really? on, the, it, I mean, I don't have the number now, so yeah. I don't want to give okay. the false numbers. But a good startup can be raising every nine to twelve months. In raising every nine to twelve raising, months. Yeah. I thought it the 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 length, the like the time it takes to, to actually raise. raise. Well, it can be as well. Okay. I mean, uh, I mean, it it depends. We talk about the seasonality effect in the region. Mm. If you start fundraising in March and you hit the summer, it's not uncommon that you're not going to close the round until. And again, what do you constitute from first conversation to getting money in the bank? For sure. Mm. I think we calculated historically it was between 12 to 14 months, a typical fundraise from beginning to end. But again, we want to put this data on the platform so that yeah. it's database. And what you can then do, and the feature that I was mentioning is for any startup, if you have the announcement date of when it's raised, you can start putting a barometer that says, look, they are now, according to the date today, currently getting into the sweet spot of where they're likely to be fundraising again. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people say, can you use Magnet to identify companies that are fundraising? We don't ask necessarily to say, are you fundraising or not? But we can use the data now to extrapolate where are they in the funding cycle as to whether they should be raising or likely to be raising. Okay. And so that will give an indication of many of those companies that are uh, currently able to raise rounds. Where, what I can say is that anecdotally speaking to many of the investors, Given everything that we've just discussed, the sweet spot seems to be uh, late stage seed, early stage series A. So the one to five million. One to five. Or one to ten. One to five million. Basically, not super early risky because in the current environment, people don't want to have too much risk. Yeah. But if you have successfully found product market fit, if you have proven 
a path to monetization. If you are building, as many people say, a startup in challenging economic environments where your valuation is likely to not be astronomical as it would have been one or two years ago, investors are looking for those type of opportunities because late stage is very challenging because it requires a lot of liquidity and a lot of conversation around uh, valuations. Super early stage is just too risky because you haven't seen product market fit and, and, and people are in a risk off mindset. But if you have created a company in the last 12 to 18 months, have got a strong founding team, all the usual kind of points, uh, unit economics, problem that you're solving that is large and scalable, and have proven some monetization and a path to unit economics that are favorable to an investor, that becomes the sweet spot. Mm. And that ticket size tends to be between to one to five million and a valuation between 15 to 25 million. So that becomes, and if they can then use runway of the next 12 to 18 months to grow that company and then the market comes back, then when they come to raise their series A, B, C, D, they'll be catching the upswing again of the venture capital ecosystem. So that's where the opportunity, as we put in our webinar, the, the, the opportunity that exists in turbulent times. So building on that, so you have angels, people like myself, who invest in the early stage and the, and the risky, right? The sweet spot you're saying is that C to Series A, so it's that $1 to $5 million check. And then... What happens, I mean, what happens later if you are a startup here? Do you have to seek funding abroad? I mean, what are the options or or the or or the funnel, you know, becomes super steep after Series A? Like, what is your likelihood to succeed as a, you know, Series A? Actually, do you track this data? If you are Series A and moving into Series B, what what's the drop-off? Rate? Yeah, so we, we have the data. That would be so interesting. one of the things as Magnet that we're really focused on moving forwards is like we've had our own pivot and journey and we now purely focus on the data and the research. And I was showing the other day the analytics tool that we have. So every one of the questions that you're asking, there is a tool on the platform that you can track. You can actually track the amount of capital that goes from Series A to Series B to Series mm -hmm. C, the number of startups. You can filter that by geography, by industry. So we have the tools. And I think one of the things that we want to focus on this year is to bring out for our clients, at least, if not somewhat socially for the public, insights around this. Yeah. So expect there to be some kind of a report or, or piece. We'll be doing one now on the most active investors by stage, by country, and we'll be doing one on valuations for the region to explain what's been happening in terms of that phenomena. That drop-off effect mm. is something that we've had a lot of questions and interest from yeah. clients on. Do you have anything off the top of your head? Off I the mean, top of my head, I don't have the numbers. No, okay. so I, but I'd I, rather I, be I could correct. imagine it would be steep. Maybe It is steep. So it is steep. And, and the question that you asked is, what do people do? And again, I can't speak because I can only speak for Magnet, but one is conserve cash and weather out the storm for the next 12 to 18 months, which is extremely painful for companies that have high burn. The second is do bridge rounds. So seek investment from your existing uh, investors or, or potentially a strategic investor that is able to do uh, a bridge round. So if you were wanting to raise 30 million, maybe you have to raise five. If you are looking to raise 10 million, maybe you have to raise two to get yourself through the next two, three years. Venture debt, we're actually bringing out as of next week in January, a venture debt report because it's become another instrument. Again, that is not applicable for all startups, but if you are proving unit economics and you have the cash flow to be able to do that, look at alternative instruments that may be uh, more beneficial than taking equity. There are a lot of government initiatives currently taking place to encourage companies to move to different geographies, which also happen to include some element of funding. So if you are strategically looking to grow into markets that's an opportunity that you could potentially take. so potentially and you if you want to if you're a uae company you want to go into saudi you might be able to get for saudi instance, funds exactly so that you can set up so with market access comes the opportunity of potential funding that can help companies grow into specific markets and in the end exits and M&A opportunity mm. seem to be, uh, now seems to be the time. So we saw a record number of exits last year, up 39% compared to last year. The challenge is, and I'm always transparent about this, is were they good exits or were they M&A exits for, for consolidation? Now, I'm a firm believer that any exit is a good exit. I'm also a firm believer that the pursuit 
an obsession of unicorns isn't necessarily always healthy and that a $100 million exit, a $50 million exit, a $250 million exit is great it's for great. the founders and the investors if there's an ROI. The employees, I was recently doing a, a, a video for Kareem and, and met with the founders there who have their 10-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Kareem Mafia effect, 100 plus companies that have been founded by employees that worked at Kareem that have raised over $500 million collectively on aggregate is a great impact story for the region Absolutely. as a success. And I'm sure that's the case for people that worked at Souk and, and many other companies in the region. So it doesn't have to be a unicorn because in fact, the only realized unicorn of the region is Kareem. And by realized, was purchased for a value over a billion dollars. Mm. Every other company was valued at a billion dollars, but that was not realized because it's either on valuation, on, on a stock market that's now kind of come Just down. Book value. Exactly. So I think that solid exits and good exits return for the founders, return for the employees, return for the investors. But even if it isn't necessarily a solid exit, the consolidation will mean that you have more successful opportunities in the future. So if it's an e-commerce and e-commerce, both struggling, combined, potentially more efficient, coming out of the current environment that we're in could be a scalable solution. Interest from Asia, interest from Europe, interest from U uh, the US. Market access is a huge opportunity for M&A. And it's likely that now that valuations are to come down a bit, that it'll be a lot more appealing for US com companies that are looking to access the MENA region, European, Asian, neighboring emerging venture markets. We saw more cross-pollination, which we consider to be African company acquiring a Middle Eastern company, a well-funded Saudi company acquiring a Turkish and Pakistani company. Again, at its core, scale is the name of the game. Yep. You either grow organically or you grow inorganically. Another phenomenon will be investors funding startups for inorganic growth to consolidate markets. And one of the things that we tell our clients that are VCs, now use Magnet, pull out your portfolio, identify companies that exist in Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, Pakistan, Turkey that may have similar profiles, take their contact details, that's the BD list of the potential acquisitions that you can go out and look yeah. for in those markets. So you spoke about the, the, the valuations and, and you said, obviously, a lot of this data has to be provided to you voluntarily, like, uh, which um, I assume it's a big challenge for you to get to where you are today. It must have taken a lot for you to build that trust for people, you know, for these companies to want to share this data. But I wanted to get your view on the ones that were public, so the, the SPACs that we had. So we've witnessed Swivel, for example, you know, it was a unicorn, speaking of realized unicorns, right? Yep. So it was a unicorn and now it's, it's gone down 90%, I think maybe even more. I think the, yep. the last time I checked the valuation was... I think it's less than a dollar. Or recently per, uh, per share. Per share. Definitely less than a dollar per share. So wh what's, what's your view on that? Because it was like, I mean, there's also Anrami, which is down considerably and we love Ali, but uh, obviously I know his... I'm sure he's actually struggling a lot to figure this out because actually I was talking to him recently and the company is doing really well. They have growth in users and paid users. They have growth in revenues and, and yet you see that decline. Any views on that? So look, it's very difficult for me to, I, I don't want to criticize without knowing the businesses individually. I think that the challenge will and always will be that these type of instruments that we're not necessarily familiar with are, are, are things that we need to be careful how we embrace them. Clearly, there were opportunities to list. Clearly, there were liquidity opportunities for those companies. But at the time, there was some level of scrutiny to try and understand, are these the right type of companies to be using these types of vehicles? And as a result they were all being done in super positive liquid times where the market was kind of rushing towards SPACs. SPACs was a US phenomena. There was a huge flight towards those type of listings. But then when the market flips, people are very quick to criticize and, and et cetera. So I am sure in each of those individual cases, they had logic for why they utilized those. But the numbers speak for themselves and the reporting that comes as a result of it. I mean, one of the things that happens is there's transparency on their books, both of which have to kind of go out and report what their growth uh, and their funding is. And so I, I don't have a particular view to share on, on them as individual companies, but 
it is clear that the public markets have taken a beating, specifically technology stocks yeah. that grew phenomenally in 21 uh, and the beginning of 22 to then have, well, not 21, that saw huge growth in those type of markets. It's the hangover effect of that that has now seen the complete reverse. And it doesn't need to be Angami and Swivel. You can look at Amazon, Tesla. You can look at some of the biggest companies in the US some of which have been shut down. So, so some of those type of companies have really seen challenges in terms of uh, their growth. Capita here in the region. We've seen big companies here in the region yes. uh, that have been shut down. Airlift. Airlift in Pakistan. Pakistan. I think that's one challenge that I would highlight. Um, clearly, there isn't a lot of transparency in our ecosystem. When Airlift shut down, it was phenomenal to see the level of transparency that was being reported on the challenges of the founders, investors, and the investigative reporting that was being put to try and understand what was happening. And yet, in the Middle East, I can speak to maybe not Africa as much. We don't know what happens when some of these companies face challenges. And the reason I say that is not to be critical, but how are we meant to learn as an ecosystem, as a founder, as an investor, uh, to try and understand what worked, what didn't work, if there isn't a level of transparency yeah. around that. And that's an open invitation where we can try and learn from companies that are going through these challenges yeah. to see what worked, what didn't work, and to speak much more vocally around what we need to learn and improve moving forwards that we can all kind of better ourselves uh, and avoid some pitfalls moving yeah. in the future. I've seen a few post-mortems. A few. Uh, yeah, but you're right. It's not, it's not enough for us, for everyone, for everyone to learn from. That's for sure. I think it's cultural. I think it's still hard for people, even though when you go to conferences and you hear VCs talking about failure and embracing failure, and I think we, we try to say the same narrative that you would hear in Silicon Valley and all these developed markets. Whereas in reality, I don't think it's the case. You know, I think it's... I think it's hard. I don't think it's accepted. I think maybe because you have a limited amount of money here that is being deployed into venture. Not, I think, you know, uh, what is it? I think it was, was it Sequoia who invested in, in FTX? Uh, no. I think it was one of them who just wrote off like $130 yeah. million. They just simply wrote a, a letter to their shareholders and said, okay, like, we did our due diligence and okay, this thing's bust. We're writing, we're writing yeah. off 130 million or. And they're able to uh, do that, right? And they're able to do that, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, I mean, to that point, you're right. The, the, I mean, the, tr try to do this here. But again, this is where I also, I mean, Magnet's been doing it for seven years, but the ecosystem has probably only been around for maximum, you can say, 15 years, and, and conservatively, you could say 10 yeah. years when some of the the bigger, the older VC firms were set up and. It takes patience. I mean, it, what are 10 years? You've gone through like early stage growth, which was like building an ecosystem. You got hit with COVID that created huge opportunities and massive challenges mm -hmm. for everyone. But in the venture space, it was like unprecedented. Yeah. You had a liquidity boom that happened in 2020, 2021 uh, that is unprecedented with companies globally and regionally taking capital and, and, and investments and valuations going off the rocks. And you're now going through the opposite, which is a, a crash. Mm. And, and I always say, all in, again, shout out to those guys. They say many of the VCs there have been through several crashes and, and booms, whether it's 2000, whether it's 2008, or going back before that in the venture capital space. Yes. We can't say that in our region or the emerging venture market region, we have had a track record of 20, 30, 40 years of boom bust logic and, uh, and understanding that can speak to investment in our space. And therefore, this will be a learning experience for years to come, yeah. but we're the ones that are going through it. Yeah, and I think it needs to happen here. The learning has to be here because it's we are a different market. Yeah, and there's one hundred percent. You know, culturally we're different, economically we're different. So I think size of market we're different, yeah. demographics are different, bureaucracy and regulation is completely different. So there are acute challenges that we face here that a single geography like the U.S. China, India, European bloc, although you could argue are similar in terms of the breakdown by geographies, but there's a European Union. Mm -hmm. Here, it's broken, it's, it's, it's fragmented. It's definitely more challenging from that perspective. Yeah. And then as a result, 
opportunities exist, but those challenges need to be overcome. Yeah. So on the industries, just I want to touch on that briefly. So aren't you bored of seeing fintech, e-commerce and logistics? It's been like that for a few years now. I don't I, think I get bored. I, I, I mean, I it's not think, for me to get bored. I, I just think I want to see. I mean, I saw this year, I saw you had real estate, but... Again, that's so skewed because it's one it's deal. One, EMPG's investment. Yes. I mean, two hundred was it two hundred yeah. million dollar investment? So again, that that's like you couldn't say that there is interest in real estate because that yeah. it's just one. It's company. so funny when you say that because I remember <laughs> when we started Magnet, we had to strip out deals that were Kareem and Souk. We had to like actively say, okay, they're so big that everything else didn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to put it in a different color. Now we do mega deals so that it's like, well, okay, more than $100 million that they're separated, yeah. but it's not Kareem and Souk. But you're right. You start seeing these variances. You can see agriculture, but then you say Pure Harvest Pure was harvest, the biggest driver of agriculture. And, uh, 160 million, was exactly. it? Exactly. And yeah. you look at transport and logistics, Getir, that receives something like 350 million okay. um, in Turkey is skewed by that. Look, I'm not bored because it's not for me to get bored. I yeah, look at the numbers. I think, well, it, I think bored was, was it, the it, wrong term. I understand but, like, the logic, but I think it's interesting to see the financial services because look I come from a financial services background having worked at Oliver Wyman and the financial services and uh, I worked at Barclays for the region and I believe that it is the biggest infrastructure pain point after you have solved for transport and logistics and again e-commerce I keep repeating is transport and logistics repackaged as the a front purchase end, platform basically. but yeah. what makes a successful e-commerce platform is getting the product home yes. the SKUs and the choice and the advertising and the and the user experience is important but it's getting the product yeah. because I remember there was a time in Dubai where you could buy something and then I, I distinctly remember you had to go to give a PO box. So why would you, I didn't have a PO box. I didn't have a mailbox. I didn't have a delivery. They couldn't deliver it to your home. It'll be PO box. That was the differentiating factor was getting it to your house. Mm -hmm. um, but the financial services industry, people get paid. People need to pay. But people there's so need to many transfer. now. I mean, there well, are so and, many and fintech were, companies. And, and Lulu, if you went back three, four years ago, we would have said the same thing about transport and logistics and e-commerce. And the total amount of capital and the total number of transactions that went to financial services is the same as transport and logistics and e-commerce combined. So that shift has now taken place where we're now in kind of act two of the ecosystem that financial services is being disrupted. The interesting thing is that in the US or global markets, fintech still remains to be one of the leading industries because it's continually disrupted, whereas others are now becoming more prevalent. I think what's interesting is that there continues to be an interest in the region for innovation. The challenge is that that can only come through research and development and it needs to come through coding. Now we see a lot of initiatives, whether it's in Saudi, the UAE, even in the Levant or, or, or North Africa, investment in coding, investment in education into engineering. That's what's gonna drive innovation from that space otherwise it's going to be the replication of concepts that funding. exist and the funding will come but I mean, if, it's if, also uh, if, it's also government funding yeah it'll need to be government funding from from research and development from that perspective but yes i agree with you that there is an interest in seeing other industries being developed but again, I go back to the point, this is not charity. So investors will invest in industries that they understand where the potential exit, the return, and the opportunity is for growth. If they are risk averse, because let me be clear, with the 79 exits that we had and the 300 exits that we've had in the last three years, if they're not seeing the ROI on their investments, yeah it becomes harder for them to raise from LPs and then LPs get put off on the industries. It is easier to make sure bets in industries that you understand than to go into industries that you may be more risk averse towards because you don't know where the exit or the potential opportunities. Doesn't mean that they're bad industry. It doesn't mean that those industries shouldn't be disrupted. It's just the mindset for why should we invest when we could invest in a slightly more uh, knowledgeable industry that we can see a return in. So it's a it's a challenge, but I think that comes with time and patience and returns. 
Okay, because I was looking at US, for example, you know, you have things like obviously biotech, cybersecurity, crypto obviously was was big. I don't know what's going to happen. Biotech, cybersecurity is heavily driven by government. So there has to be a concerted government interest. Now, government can fund direct or there are funds that understand the potential of those products being acquired by pharmaceuticals, Mm. by government, by the army. So there's a path to exit. So they'll invest in it because they see that opportunity. That requires a certain mindset change. Now it's happening. There's a committee that was set up in the UAE to focus on research and development. Climate. Exactly, climate. We look at Mazda this week is sustainability week. There's a focus on ESG, sustainability, investment in that space. But I always say that success breeds success. And the more success exits that are beneficial and positive, not unicorns, but 50, 100, 200 million, then it gives people Mm. an example when they do their due diligence and investment thesis decks to say, we have seen an example of a successful exit in this space, we should invest in that industry. And I think that's, it's almost kind of the chicken and egg exercise of you need the exits to drive the investment, the investment needs to, uh, you need the startups to get the investment, but they need the funding. So it is literally a little bit of a yeah, chicken and egg. But we eggs. haven't seen yet a big fintech exit, have we, in the region? No. Not yet. No. But so there's proven models be... of fintech exits globally that exist. But the regulatory acquires. environment is different here. I mean, h- half of For them sure. don't even have licenses. For sure. Or it takes them a year to get a license. So, And, and that's where you say the, the opportunity exists because... Yeah. Again, you take the Kareem example, you take the Souk example, what they did was overcome all of the challenges that a Uber or an Amazon would come and face if they came to the region and laid the blueprint for them and became very interesting and appealing because they could then come and acquire them. Yeah. Now, it's not to belittle it down to just that, but ultimately that's the model. They've a- they were able to go and compete in some cases and lay the foundations of working out the challenges of the bureaucracy and the licensing for the infrastructure and fintech that's exactly what's happening those companies are going and working with the regulators with the banks with the licenses if they're able to achieve that becomes very appealing for an equivalent company in the us or europe to come in and say great thank you yeah What's what's next for uh, what's next for what's next for Magnet? <laughs> what's next uh, for you? You said you're gonna get into Singapore. What's so Magnet continues to grow, and our focus is on three key pillars. One is geographical expansion. So, like I said, it becomes very interesting to benchmark this region against other emerging venture markets. And for me, next one is sorry, next one is going to be adding Singapore and then other geographies from Southeast Asia. So before the end of H1, we should have that information and data on the platform for our clients. The second is the depth of data that we want to focus on. So a lot of our information and data is focused on funding, but there are other indicators of growth of companies, whether they're social metrics, whether they're business metrics, whether there's uh, subjective information that can be provided by the companies and the investors that we will work to add to the platform to continue to enrich the profiles and the analysis that we can do on the platform. One thing, for instance, we'll be launching uh, at the end of this month is a people directory. So we've been gathering all the users of the platform and the people that are working at all these institutions will have the profiles of all of those people, their, their, their education, their work experience, so that you can add a layer of the people, not just the companies for each of the different entities. And then the third is on the analytics front. We continue to double down on data visualization. So on the platform, you can visualize every research report on demand and filter that and move away from all of our research and analytics being historically focused and start doing predictive analysis by industry, by stage, for companies, some of the metrics that I've told you about, the barometers. So it's to take the data and and, and not just look at it historically, but look at how can that predict specific industries and uh, regions. Okay. And on a personal level, we were, we were talking a little bit before we started recording this. Can you... Can you share some of the maybe top three podcasts that you listen to personally so you can, you know, learn more about the about the industry and what's going on? Yeah, from the industry, the All In podcast is the Bible. I was shared that by uh, 
one of the founders of Kareem and, and, and that was in the middle of COVID and I thank him for that. And it was insightful because it really gives me context of what's happening in the US. It gives me context of what's happening in the venture capital space, financial markets. But again, I can then relate how that is uh, to our region. So from a VC and insight perspective, that's one of the things that I listen to. I now walk back and forth from the DIFC. So I have every day a podcast that I listen to. The second one is politics, but it's the rest is politics in the UK because being British and having left the UK, I find it very interesting to listen to Alistair Campbell on what's happening from that perspective. It's called politics? The rest is politics. The rest is politics, yeah. okay. And the third, I love sports. So anything to do with Formula One. Uh, okay. I'm an avid fan of F1 podcasts, whether it's the race, whether it's uh, F1 Nation, Beyond the Grid. So I'm an avid listener to kind of switch off to anything that's F1 related. Okay. Last words for entrepreneurs that are, you know, potentially looking to raise or to build in, in 2023. What should they watch out for? Look, buckle up. It's going to be a tough ride. Like any roller coaster, there's some highs and there's some lows. I feel like we're, we're, we're in a little bit of a dip right now. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be disheartened. Nobody said that entrepreneurship was easy. It was, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, as, as some people say. But as I always have learned in the last seven years, in any turbulent time and in any challenge, opportunities exist. And it's about being able to find those opportunities, grab those opportunities and continue to, to, to grow. And I believe that innovation and technology is key to the growth of the regions that we cover. Without technology and innovation growth, we won't see generational shifts and, and developments. And when you look at specific governments in our region, they are very much focused on that space. So the opportunity exists. It just means that we need to buckle up and get through a, a slightly challenging period. And if you are able to do that and come out the other side, then the, you see the upswing of the roller coaster again and you can kind of weather yourself through that. All right. Thank you so much, Philip. It was Thank great you very to have much. you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with Lulu. If you enjoyed the discussion with Philip and you want to know more about Magnet, you can visit magnet.com. It's M-A-G-N-I-T-T.com. Don't forget to visit the show's website, conversationswithlulu.com. You can also reach out to me on all social media channels at Lulu Hazen. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you watch or you listen to your podcast and make sure to give us a rating and a review. It really helps in getting the show discovered. I wish you love and light and see you in a few weeks. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit capital.com and start your trading journey today.